All right, we're going to be in the book of Revelation tonight. We're going to be back in chapter 2. <clears throat> we're studying the, um, the church in Pergamum. Or um, actually, I think if you got the King James Version, it says uh, Pergamus, maybe. But either way, it's um, I don't know which one is right. I don't know why they interpret it one way in one translation and another in the other. But um, either way, it's the same place. Uh, but before we get started on this tonight, I've got this little short video that's going to give you just a little bit of context um, that I believe is helpful. Now let me say this before we watch it. <clears throat> this is a very loose interpretation of what he's talking about when he says where Satan's throne is. We cannot definitively say that Satan's throne is this what we're fixing to show you right here but it is interesting context nonetheless, okay? So I'm not trying to add to or take away from Scripture in any way here, but this is pretty important historical context on the city of Pergamum and some interesting context up into later days as well. And so I think that you'll get a lot from this. about seven minutes long and, um, and then we'll get into the reading of the Scripture. So whenever you're ready, Nathan, go ahead. I, John, was on the island that is called Patmos. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, I know your works, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Today all that's left of Pergamon are ruins, but when the Apostle John wrote his letter to the church there, it was one of the most influential cities in the Roman Empire. Pergamum had a unique status that was different than any other city because it was the political center. And it was from there that all of the rulings were made which affected the whole of Asia Minor. The city's Acropolis rivaled Athens, and its library was the second largest in the ancient world, with a collection so great that the Roman general Mark Antony presented it as a wedding gift to Cleopatra. At the end of the first century, Pergamon was a thriving city. So why does the book of Revelation call it the dwelling place of Satan? The answer lies in the ruins of the city's temples. On one side, it was a very beautiful city. But on the flip side, it was one of the darkest, eeriest cities in the whole Roman Empire. The people of Pergamon were known as the Temple Keepers of Asia. The city had three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman Emperor, another for the goddess Athena, and the great altar of Zeus, the king of the Greek gods. Many scholars believe this altar is the throne of Satan mentioned in the book of Revelation. That word throne was first used to describe a chair that was used in a personal private residence. And it was the chair for the Lord of the house, the master of the house. The very fact that Jesus would use that word in this verse means Satan felt at home there. He sat on a throne there. It was his territory. He was the master of that house. The city also had a healing center called the Asclepion. It was built in honor of the Greek serpent god Asclepios. In the first century, this was a cross between a hospital and a health spa, where patients could get everything from mud baths to major surgery. Even the emperors came all the way from Rome to be treated here. But this was no ordinary doctor's visit. If you were a terminal patient, then you were not allowed to go into the Asclepion. And these Asclepian priests didn't want anyone hearing somebody had died in the Asclepion. And in fact, there was a huge sign just above the official entrance to the Asclepion which said, death is not permitted here. So the only way you're gonna get in to begin with is if they knew you were gonna live. Patients entered through this underground tunnel then they drank a sedative and slept here in the dormitories. 
while non-poisonous snakes crawled around them all night. They were told that the serpent god Asclepios would speak to them in their dreams and give them a diagnosis. It was believed that the snakes actually carried the healing power of Asclepius. And if a snake slithered across you while you were sleeping at night, that was a divine sign that healing power was coming to you. The next morning, the patients told their dreams to the priests who prescribed their treatments. Finally, the patients made clay sculptures of the body parts that needed healing and offered them to Asclepios. The people of Pergamon worshipped a myriad of Greek and Roman gods, but when Christianity arrived with the belief in just one god, the city's pagan priests went on the attack, and their most famous victim was a man named Antipas. In the book of Revelation, Jesus called Antipas my faithful martyr. He was the bishop of Pergamum, ordained by the apostle John, and his faith got the attention of the priests of Asclepius, who complained to the Roman governor in Pergamum. The priests testified that demons appeared to them in their dreams and told them that the prayers of Antipas were driving them out of the city. He had cast out so many devils that the demons, the spirits, had been complaining to pagans, you've got to do something about this Antipas. Antipas was ordered to offer a sacrifice of wine and incense to a statue of the Roman emperor and declare that the emperor was Lord and God. He refused. If you reject the divinity of the emperor, it's the equivalent of rejecting the city of Rome. And believers were killed for this. Antipas was sentenced to death on the altar of Zeus. Most of that altar survives today, and surrounding it are some of the world's most famous marble friezes. They portray the battle between the Greek gods and the giants. At the top of the altar was a hollow bronze bull designed for human sacrifice. They would take the victim, place him inside the bull. They would tie him in such a way that his head would go into the head of the bull. Then light a huge fire under the bull. And as the fire heated the bronze, the person inside the bull would slowly begin to roast to death. And as the victim would begin to moan and would begin to cry out in pain, his cries would go through all of the pipes which were in the head of the bull, so it seemed to make the bull come alive. Even in the midst of the flames, Antipas died praying for his church. A few years later, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, mentioning the death of Antipas on this very spot. Here in Pergamon, all that's left is the foundation. Today, the altar of Zeus is more than a thousand miles away. In the 19th century, German engineers dismantled the altar and took it to Berlin. The so-called throne of Satan went on display in the city's Pergamon Museum in 1930 just in time to inspire one of the most brutal dictators the world has ever seen. Pretty interesting context, ain't it? <clears throat> the, um, the Museum of Pergamum is still in Berlin today, and actually one thing they didn't tell you on here is that um, when Hitler built his own altar, if you will, the one that he so famously, you see him in so many videos giving his speeches from, from his podium, it, he, his altar was built, designed after that same altar of Zeus, only bigger. And so um, it's interesting to me that um, that's the context of Pergamum. And then it followed it all the way to Germany for Hitler to, to do what he did. And so whenever it talks about the throne of Satan in here, that's interesting to me. Because one thing that you need to remember is this. Satan is not omnipresent like God. God is everywhere at once. The Bible actually says... 
in Him we live and move and have our being. Satan is one of God's creations. And he, just like you and I, can only be in one place at a time. Now he can go to and fro and he has his reign and he has many demons that he is the prince over and he rules and commands. However, he has a dwelling and a place to where he stays. And apparently, if we're, interpret this, if we're interpreting this right, and I believe that we are, Pergamum at this time was the place where Satan had chose this is where I am going to take up my residence. This is where I am going to be at home. And literally, they had constructed an altar to the god Zeus, which Satan apparently had took on the uh, personification of. And so ultimately, while the Romans were sacrificing to all these other gods, in particular Zeus, guess who they were actually worshiping? And here Satan is on his throne of this altar and he's taken in all the worship of the world. And so one of the things that we get from this, or I believe we can take from this, is that any worship to any proclaimed God other than the one true God is actually a worship to Satan and him alone. There is no other Worship, there is no other gods. It is either we worship the one true God or we worship the one who has usurped the dominion of this world and takes worship for himself. So with that said, let's uh, read from Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 and we'll take these a step at a time and see if we can figure out what, what we can learn from this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, anybody want to take a gander at um, what you think He means when He says He has the sharp two-edged sword? What, what, are other, what other places in Scripture do we see a sharp two-edged sword and what does it refer to? God's Word. Can anybody think of another scripture that that um, that shows us that? Bobby, look up Hebrews chapter four, verse twelve. Melinda, look up Ephesians chapter six, verse seventeen. Tim, look up Revelations chapter two, verse sixteen. This is another thing that I want you to try to remember. Most of the time you can use Scripture to interpret Scripture. If we want to know what something, what something symbolizes, then many times, most every time, there is another place in Scripture somewhere that has used this symbol and has told us what it is. Alright? So we're going to use Scripture to interpret Scripture to make sure that we're getting the right interpretation. So Bobby, read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 for us. So what is sharper than a two-edged sword? The Word of God. All right. Now, um, Melinda, give us Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, please. Okay. So what is the Word of God? So again, symbolism, right? The sharp two-edged sword, sharper than any two-edged sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, Tim, give us Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. All right, so let's put that together. So he says, I'm going to war against you with the sword of what? My mouth. So, in other words, he's talking about the words that he speaks, right? Or if you go to Ephesians, he says, 
The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Or if you're talking about the Word of God being living and powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. When you take all of those together, can we safely say that a correct interpretation of this is that we can read it like this? These are the words of Him who has the Word of God. Could we say that? (coughs) Excuse me. Okay, so that's the introduction that we have here. (coughs) This is the words of God. Now, notice what he says in verse 13. I know where you dwell. In other words, I know where you what? Where you live. I know where you make your home. What does he know about it? about their home, about where they live. So this is where, and you remember what he said this word represents? If we did a Greek study of this word, you just saw it on the video if you remember. What does that word throne mean? Where you're comfortable at. The seat for the master of the house. You remember that? So here's what we can say about Pergamum. These Christians live, dwell in the place where Satan is the master of the house. Right? Jesus says to these Christians, I know this. I know where you live. In other words, I know how bad it is around you. Correct? I know how evil it is. Alright? But yet, you hold fast my name. Even though Satan is the master of this place where they dwell, they will not reject the name of Jesus Christ. You hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so there he says it again, right? So it's very clear here. Jesus wants them to understand. I know about the evil that is around you. I know about the ruling power that is over the place where you dwell. I know about the the way that Satan (coughs) (coughs) is killing Christians around you. Correct? especially my faithful witness. And if their interpretation is correct, and we don't know for certain, we don't here's the, here's another thing. That was some good historical context and as far as I know, that is true about the um thank you. As far as I know, that is true about who Antipas was. The fact of the matter is the Bible doesn't really tell us for certain And so it could be, it could not be. But here's what we do know. Whether that's the exact story of what he's talking about right here or not, we know that he was a faithful martyr, it says here. And we know that... or a faithful witness. And we know that he was killed because he would not deny the name of Jesus and he would not reject the faith in Jesus Christ. Alright? And so these are the things that Jesus knows about this place. Now, in verse 14, But I have a few things against you. (laughs) You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. They are in the midst of an evil place where people are being killed, maybe even roasted to death for their faith. Correct? And Jesus says, I know this. And He says, I know that you won't deny My name. I know that you will not reject My faith. Wouldn't you say that's a pretty great commendation? 
I mean, come on, guys. If, if I could hear that from Jesus, that's pretty awesome. But yet, I have something against you. Because even though sometimes persecution comes from the outside and it causes people to... Um, the pressures of this world causes them to deny the faith or to walk away or to say it's just it's too much, right? And then sometimes the devil finds a way to get into the church another way. See, here's the thing about, about it. In the United States of America, he don't, we don't really have to worry about um, somebody trying to force us to bow the knee to Caesar. For the most part, right now. Now, it may be coming in the near future. But for the most part, we don't have to worry about that. But there is something that we have to worry about. The threat of Satan coming from the inside of the church. Notice what he says. I'm not concerned about the boldness of your faith. What I have against you is this right here in verse um, 14. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. So what is what is what is the church what does this church need to be concerned about? Huh? Heresy, false teaching. Jesus said, and listen, I want you to think about how serious this must be, because you think about the commendation they've just received. And yet Jesus says, But I have this against you. You have some there who hold to this false teaching. And because this false teaching is allowed to grow in the church, ultimately it is corrupting the church, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. So let's see what it is that it is doing. This teaching of Balaam is one that taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So there's, so they, they taught to put a stumbling block. So some kind of stumbling block was put into place before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Anybody in here know any context on Balaam and Balak? I bet you know more than you think you do. No? Mm-mm. Huh? That's right. That's right. So Balak, let me let me fill in the blanks and you can finish. Balak is the king of Moab. He sees this massive children of Israel army coming that's going to pass through the land of Moab to get to the promised land. But he's also heard of all that their God has done to the Egyptians and anybody that comes that, that they, that they come into battle with. All right? He's heard of what happens. So Balak, what does he do? That's right. God forbid it, and he was not able to, and that's actually when he talked to the donkey, I think, the best of it. That's right. There you go. So, yes, that happened after he was not able to pronounce the curse. That's right. Sexual immorality, he put it upon the stumbling block. And they accepted that. So, here's what happened. Balak sees the king of Moab, he sees the children of Israel coming. He goes to this diviner, this prophet, if you will, named Balaam. And he says, hey, I know you talk to God. I want you to curse this people. I'll pay you this amount of money. Balaam says, okay. And so he goes and he tries to curse the people and God says, no, you can't curse them. This is my people. Balaam comes back to Balak and he says, I can't curse them. God won't let me. 
So then he brings the princes of Moab and he gets them all together and they offer even greater uh, reward to him. He says, listen, you got to do something. We'll do this if you go. So then Balaam goes back. And this happens, I think, about three times. And Balaam finally comes back and he says, listen, I can't. I cannot curse them. No matter what I do, I cannot curse this people. So they start trying to get him to go again. And he says, okay, I'm going to try to do it anyway. So he gets on a donkey and he starts going his way to curse this people. But along the way on his donkey, what happens? His donkey just stops and he won't go. And Balaam begins to beat the donkey. You're going to go, you're going to go. And then all of a sudden, what happens? The donkey talks. Don't you see what I see? And what did the donkey see that Balaam didn't see? The angel of God was standing in the way with the sword. In other words, that donkey's trying to save Balaam's life and Balaam's beating this donkey to try to get him to turn around. So here's, here's what happened. Whenever Balaam finally realized that no matter what I do, I can't curse this people, he goes back to Balak and he says, I can't curse them, but here's what you can do. If you will let your Moabite women come in and mingle with these Israelite men, they'll start mixing together. And when they start mixing together, you will lead them into worshiping their gods. And so ultimately, he found a way to curse the people of God without actually pronouncing a curse on them. He led them into sexual immorality and idol worship in such a way that it made God be against His own people. So this is what is beginning to take place in here. Notice what he says in verse 14 again. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So there is some teaching that has been allowed to come into the church that in some way is saying it's okay for you to have these kind of relations with people that... In a sense, you could almost say it like this. It's possible that they had somebody up there teaching Christians saying, you can marry people who are not Christians. It's very possible. Because that's exactly what took place. That's exactly what Balaam did. And so it's very possible that there is some kind of teaching that is in this place that is putting a stumbling block in the way of people that is leading them into things like sexual immorality and it does not address it. It does not... So in other words, sexual immorality is something that Jesus is concerned with in the church, right? And then in the same manner... Idol worship was another thing. Eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul addressed this back in Romans and he says, listen, eat whatever is set before you. It don't matter if it's been sacrificed to an idol. You know that an idol is nothing. Now, if your conscience says, then yes, for conscience sake, don't eat it. But at the end of the day, an idol is, is, is nothing. So eat whatever is set before you. So what? this is not about that. This is about them actually worshiping idols in some way. They were, being, they were being intermingled with the culture of the world. The same thing that's happening to the church today. In many of the churches today, there are teachings that have come. They haven't been persecuted from the outside in and caused them to turn away from the faith. But instead, they have people inside the church that hold to the doctrine of Balaam that says, God's not really concerned about this and you can still be a Christian and not have to worry about this. And go ahead and, and yoke up with people who are unbelievers and are not walking the same path you are. That's right. And at the end of the day, Satan is the one behind this. Because if he can't get to you from the outside in, he is like a wolf in what? Sheep's clothing. And he'll come to you in the form of a preacher. And he'll feed you itching ears exactly what they want to hear. And he will allow you to go the way that, that you want to go. 
And that's exactly what's happening right here. So one of the things, what, what's something that we can learn from this in our, in our culture today, in our church today? What's an application for us in this? That's exactly right. No matter how good you are in other things, no matter how much you can be commended for all the things you do as a Christian, false teaching is serious. Serious. And even a little bit of untruth is not acceptable. Y'all see that? All right. He says here in a minute, he says, if, if you won't repent from this, I'm going to come and war against you with what? The sword of my mouth. In other words, what is the cure for this sickness in the church? Any person that looks at the Word of God knows that God is not okay with sexual immorality, right? I'm sorry. you got so many churches and, and um, I ain't trying to blast nobody even though maybe I should. But you know, I, I had a conversation with a church not too long ago. The pastor of this church about a situation that concerned us. And I just asked him, I said, you know, what's your, I know these people are members of your church. What is your, what's your view on this? How do you, how do you feel about this whole situation? And he said, well, we do believe that sexual immorality is a sin. We do. But we just believe you need to meet people where they are. It's not our place to, to come in and judge them for the, the, the exact words, honestly, were, we just believe you need to meet people and love them where they are. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that we have a responsibility to lead sinners into repentance? Or do you believe that our responsibility is just to let them think that they're okay in their sin? Quoting his exact words were, I understand what you're saying, but we don't do that here. Quote, I understand what you're saying, but we don't do that here. That's right. Probably more. So if God yeah. That's correct. And that's what I'm getting at is that you have so many today that the Word of God is plain. I mean, you can't read it any other way when He says very plainly, no sexually immoral person will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You can't get no more cut and dry than that. Alright? And yet, you have teachers that hold to the doctrine of putting stumbling blocks in the way so that people can continue to live in... Now again, I understand that we're all sinners. And that's what I told this guy too. I said, listen, I understand what you're saying because his thought process was, we're all sinners, so who am I to judge someone else? I get that. But I also understand that it's not an excuse for us to just allow each other to stay in sin. We have to love each other enough to teach and preach the truth of God's Word and lead them into repentance. And if you will not repent, guess what Jesus says? I'm coming to make war against you. And you know what He's making war against you with? The sword of His mouth. Because His words are truth, and any other word is a lie. The Bible said, let every man be a liar, but let God be true. 
And so we have to see here that this is a very serious error that this church has that we have to be very careful and guard against. And then he, he doubles down on it in verse 15 when he says next, So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. So here we have two different teachings that were both false teachings. One false teaching was a teaching that actually um, led people into sexual immorality instead of the truth of God's Word that is meant to turn you away. You know, here's here's the truth of it. When you and I come in and sit under the Word of God, it ought to convict us. Every one of us in some way. Because we are sinners. That's not a bad thing. That is a gift from God. When He comes against you with the words of His mouth, that is an opportunity for you to turn around and to follow Him. To be able to see the error of your way and go the right way. So it's not a bad thing. In this other teaching here, we don't really know for certain who the uh, the Nicolaitans were, but when you go back and you study the Greek, it actually comes from two separate words. It comes from Nico, or another word that we translate today as is Nike. Anybody in here got any Nikes? Anybody know what the Greek word Nike or Nico means? To conquer. And then... Latians, which comes from the Greek word, the root of it being laity. Anybody know what laity means? So here, I believe that you can probably get the teaching that was taking place by the two words that are put together. Now again, I don't know that's what it is. We don't know exactly what the teaching was. But it's interesting that basically you have two words here that means to conquer people. In other words, I believe that you had where Jesus said, let no one call you rabbi, but you are brothers. That's what He said. Don't don't let them call you rabbi or father. He said you have one father, which is in heaven. But what you have beginning to grow out of this is where we get Roman Catholics today. And now we go from from being a servant of the people. He said, whoever is greatest among you is actually going to be the what? the least, the greatest servant. But somewhere along the way, they began to hold a teaching to where the leaders of the church were put there to conquer you in some way, to hold over you, authority over you in some way. And they became became popes, and they became fathers, and they became priests, and they became people that we had to go through in order to get to God. And so this whole thing began to be twisted around backwards from where it was supposed to be, which again is why we're Protestants today, alright? That's why we protest the Roman Catholic faith, because there are many doctrines such as that that are way off from what the Scriptures actually teach. But we have this teaching that is possibly one that was a conquering of the people instead of where Jesus taught us to love one another, to serve one another, not to rule over one another. Okay? So again, I don't know that that's the teaching. It's just interesting that that's what you get when you put the two words together. But either way, here's what we can say definitely, whether we know what the teachings were for sure or not. We can say definitely that one thing that Jesus is concerned with is any false teaching in the church. I don't care whether it's the teaching of the Nicolaitans, I don't care if it's a teaching that leads people into sexual immorality or puts a stumbling block in front of the people for any other sin. The fact of the matter is, if it is not the truth of God's Word being spoken, it is not acceptable in the church. And so he says in verse 16, we have the command. So here's the way I break it down. If I'm outlining this and I'm studying it for myself and I'm doing my observation, I'm writing down under my observation, you know, I'm seeing the first thing I'm seeing is the commendation. Or the first thing I'm seeing is the introduction. 
And I do a little study about he, how he introduced himself. Why did he introduce himself as the one, what did he say in verse uh, 12 again? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. What's he trying to say there? Why does he want these people to know that he is the one that has the words of the sharp two-edged sword? Mm-hmm. And what did that scripture you read say about that sharp sword? What can it do? What does that sharp sword do? And what does that mean? It has the ability to cut out anything that don't belong. <laughs> It has the ability to do any surgery that we need done in this, alright? And so, this is the one who has the words of the sharp two-edged sword. And so, that's the way I start out, is the introduction. Why did he introduce himself this way? And then I would go down to the commendation. Um, here's what Jesus knows about him, and he commends him for it. And so, I'm writing down all the details of what this means. Jesus knows where they dwell. Jesus knows that they won't deny His faith. Jesus knows that the master of the house is Satan in the place where they live. Jesus knows that even in the days that they watched their pastor possibly be roasted alive in a brass bull, even in those days, they would not turn and deny His name. The commendation. The next thing I'm seeing is the condemnation. But, even though I see these things and know these things about you, I have these things against you. The condemnation. You let false teaching come in the back door and you accept it when you should know that sexual immorality God is not okay with. When you should know that idol worship, God is not okay with you mixing with that. When you should know that uh, so on and so on, that that um, God is not about people conquering other people, but people serving other people and working together. I have these things against you. So, that's the condemnation. And then the next thing we have is what? In verse 16, how would you outline that? What do we have there? Huh? Promise or the command? The command. In other words, here's what you have to do. And so what is the command of Jesus here? How would they repent? What, what would it mean to repent here? <laughs> May have to fire a pastor, mightn't they? May have to get rid of a few teachers. Or at least correct them. And if they will not be corrected... <laughs> you got to go. You got to go. Therefore, repent. And if not, next, after the command, what do we have? Huh? The promise. I would, I would say, and you can tie it, and there's no wrong way to do that because you're exactly right. I would say the warning. I'd say the warning. What's the warning? If you won't repent, if you don't do this, if you don't follow my command, I will come to you when? What does that mean? <laughs> that means He's not going to let false teaching go on forever in the church, is He? I will come to you soon and war against who? Them. Them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to who? So who is this to? Starts immediately with Pergamum, right? But then ultimately, it goes to all of us we have to make sure that we are on guard to making sure 
that the truth of God's Word is all that is being spoken. This is the reason why I love so much when you just, you just stick to the Word. We just together, we just get into it and we examine it together. And we let the Word of God speak. Nothing added to it, nothing taken away, just thus says the Lord. And then we leave here going, okay, what do we do with it? And I, I just, even though that's old-fashioned, and even though most churches, most church growth people today will tell you that's a way for a church not to make it. That's what they'll say. That's what they'll tell you. If you, matter of fact, one of the famous preachers out there today, excuse me, um, Andy Stanley, I'll call him by name, Charles Stanley's son, he'll tell you today, that if you preach just going through the Word of God and you don't try to get out there and have your, your presentations and your shows and your, and you don't try, that, that you're just being lazy, that you're just a lazy preacher. That's what he says. You're just a lazy preacher. You just don't want to actually do the, do, do the work. No, I say you're a safe preacher. You're a safe preacher. And all them other ones, I would say, are going to learn one day that they probably weren't as smart as they thought they were. That's just me. So, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Next, as Tim said a minute ago, I believe this is the way I would um, title this, the promise. Here's the promise. To the one who, what? Conquers. Now, in this context, what would it mean to conquer? What would that look like in this church? They repent from sexual immorality. They repent from the Nicolaitans and the false teachings. They deal with the false teachers in the church to the one who conquers. Notice what the promise is. I will give some of the hidden manna. Now what was the manna? Anybody remember? Bread from heaven. You remember what Jesus said about who He is? He said, I am the bread. And He compared it to the manna that fell from heaven. And He actually said, I'm the manna that fell from heaven. Is basically what He come out and said. And so basically what we have here is Jesus saying to you, the one who conquers, I have the bread of life. The bread of life for you. And ultimately that's just another way of saying, I have eternal life waiting for you. And the next promise, the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone. Does anybody know anything about the context of that? What does a white stone mean? Do what? Okay. Yeah. So if they had the games and you were the winner, actually one of the things that, that was interesting to me that I learned about it a while back, this stone, however big it was, I don't, know, I don't even know what it looked like, but it was also their ticket into the champion's feast. They would have a party that night for all the champions of the games and your ticket for entrance into that feast was your trophy, your white stone, the victor stone that you received. And so that was interesting to me that possibly what Jesus is saying here is that when you conquer in this manner, I give you the, um, the trophy, the, 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 the ticket to the feast, um, possibly. And then... Is that what it was? You may be right. I don't know. Is that is that true? Okay. 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 Yeah. Okay. Hmm. And then to the conqueror, I will give the stone with a new name written on the stone, 
that no one knows except the one who receives it. Somebody go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, or everybody turn there. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Let's take a look at um, just a little bit about a new name. Again, using Scripture to interpret Scripture. I believe this is a, a good place to go to better understand what this promise actually means. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by, become, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So ultimately, Jesus conquered, right? And because He conquered, notice what God does for Him in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So in that context, what could it mean to receive a new name on this stone that no one knows except the one who receives it? In verse 9, why did, why did God give Jesus a new name? The very first part of it. First few words of it, that was part of God exalting Him. And so could we safely interpret and say that the promise here that Jesus gives is likely that He gives us a name in which God uses that name as a way to exalt us. Because Jesus told us, He said, humble yourself under the hand of God, so that in due time He may what? He may exalt you. He may lift you up. And so we have that promise in the Word of God that God is going to exalt us. He's actually going to exalt us in a way that He seats us to reign with Christ. You are going to rule with Jesus Christ. You are going to share in His reward. You are going to share in His name that every knee bows to and every tongue confesses that He is Lord. You are going to share in that. That's the reason why when we sing that song that says, why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. I don't know why I should gain from His reward. But one thing I know for certain is He promised me that I am. He promises me that He's going to exalt me the same way that He exalted Christ. He's just like He gives Jesus a new name that exalts Him. He gives me a name that He exalts me. Why does He do that? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And that's the only reason I know that He's going to do this. That's it. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul said, I can't boast in anything except Christ and Him crucified. That's my only boast. I don't have any other boast. So, back to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll finish this up. <clears throat> Verse... Um, 17, one more time. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So somebody tell me, <clears throat> what is the interpretation that we should get from this? Sum it up for me. Okay. See that stone better in the kingdom. Okay. Otherwise, we will face his judgment. And, and it, when, when it says the book broke, that's the book we're going to be judged by that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he can he'll command a lot of stuff, won't he? 
But even though He could commend you for everything, He does not commend and He will not tolerate teaching that is contrary to His truth. I like it. That's a great application. That's good. So even though you got a few things right, there's always room for improvement. There's always something that you and I need to be examining and working on. And you know, that's important because today we live in a Christian culture that just believes that Christian just means just be the best you can be and don't really pay no attention to whether or not you're growing in Christ or actually going to war with your sin. But we actually live in a culture that believes that I can, I can make agreements and I can make covenants with my sin. And God is okay with that because Jesus paid it all. And is that true? No. No, He has called us out of darkness. The Bible says that this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. But people love darkness more than the light because their deeds were evil. In other words, because they continued to pursue sinful actions instead of pursuing Christ when they saw the light come into the world. The condemnation is going to be, light came into the world. You saw what it looked like. You saw the way. And yet you still made the decision to pursue darkness. And the evidence of that was the fact that your deeds were still evil. And that's the condemnation that will be in the world. So I like it. There's always something to work on. Anybody else? What other application can we get from this? Yeah. Well, and that's what I'll say. There, there are several interpretations and, and it's hard to be able to know for certain what exactly it was talking about when it says Nicolaitans. Some of them believe that it goes back to the deacon that was mentioned in Acts chapter 7, I believe it was, they called Nicholas. And some people say that it possibly goes back and it relates to something that he began to teach in the church that was wrong. But again, we don't know. We don't know for certain. What we do know is that it was false teaching. It was not the words of the sharp two-edged sword. It was not the truth of God's Word. And apparently it should have been abundantly clear. And yet they still accepted it as truth. And I'm telling you, that's America's church today. That is America's church today. And he says, what's the command? You've got to turn this thing around. And if not, what's the warning? And when's he coming? <laughs> That's right. That's right. But to the one who conquers. Oh, goodness, to the one who conquers. Amen. All right. Any questions tonight? Well, thank you all for your time and attention. I hope that you're learning something. I hope that um, especially that you'll be able to find a way to apply this um, uh, in your life. And, and I hope that um, you really start paying attention when you listen to these teachers and preachers that, that you know for certain that they're just saying, thus says the Lord. And that's what the Lord is saying. Amen. Uh-huh. That's right. All right. Well, let's close the Lord in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank You tonight for Your Word. We thank You tonight that, uh, Lord, it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, thank You tonight that even though that we may have some things right, Father, you, You're still working on us and that there's always room for us to grow. Father, I pray tonight, God, that... Um, Lord, that You would give us wisdom and eyes to be able to, to recognize wolves in sheep's clothing. Lord, that we would have eyes to be able to recognize when teachers are, are compromising with the world. Father, when, 
we're being led to think it's okay to make covenants with sin and to um, to Father to to serve you and the world at the same time. And Father, I pray God that you would just help us to be able to to repent from that in any way. Father, I pray for the church in America. Father, I pray that um, the truth of your word would be spoken. And Father, I pray that it would be absolutely evident, Lord, that um, that they're leading their churches to become more like You. Father, I truly pray, just as John the Baptist said, Father, that we would decrease and You would increase, Lord. And Father, if we can't see that happening in in the church, Father, today the church is all about us increasing and how much You love us and how much You want us to to have this and do that. Father, it's all about You. Father, we must decrease and You must increase. And so, Father, I pray, God, that that we would always be ready to come hear Your Word and understand that it's going to be a Word that causes us to put flesh to death. And, Father, to allow You to come to life in us. And, Father, I just pray, God, that that's the kind of church that we'll be here. That, Father, we'll be able to hear You say, Well done, my good and faithful servants. Father, we love You. Forgive us where we fail You. But, Lord, thank You so much for for the words of Your mouth, for the sharp two-edged sword that, Lord, divides between the bone and the marrow. Father, again, I just pray that You would help us to be found faithful. We love You, we praise You, and we ask You for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.